The Spoken Word, half an hour of poetry and performance, your connection to Melbourne's grassroots poetry scene, the voice of those of us who have nothing but our voices. Good morning and welcome to 3CR's Spoken Word. My name is Ella Fanelska and my guest in the studio today is Yelchi. When I think of Yelchi, I think migrant poet, sound poet, politics and poetry. Yelchi has been writing, editing, performing and publishing poetry since the 70s. Princes by Night is Yelchi's fourth collection of poetry and will be launched on the 27th of March at Collected Works Bookshop. Welcome to Spoken Word, Yolchi. Oh, thanks, Ella. <laughs> it's great to be back at 3CR. Um, that was a terrific track, didn't you think? Yeah. Uh, it's definitely not me. It's Patty Smith, <laughs> listeners. Um, but it's to do with um, growing up as a poet, really, or becoming a poet during you know the time that she was so important, and also in the time when rock musicians were held as writing songs that were like poetry, um, spontaneous poetry, because rock brought uh, rock and roll together with um, post-1957. Um, folk revival, you know, sound of civil rights movement and anti-war activism. And so rock became really important, um, having a message as well as being really good music. And it was very spontaneous at times with happenings and so on. So I grew up in that era. So Patti Smith was always really important, especially at parties. Yeah, and I know that she was an influence of yours, so I thought it would be nice Absolutely, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, you know, you probably can't see it anywhere, but, you know, she was always there, you know. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, what brought you to poetry, Yelchi? Oh, I think I've always loved reading poetry out aloud. I think that's basically what I love, you know. Um, even at primary school, I was asked to get up in front of the class and read poems. And then here in Australia, my English wasn't too good. But <laughs> I used to take part in these competitions for German poetry and French poetry at the Alliance Francaise and, and Goethe, Goethe Society. In Institute, yeah. And that kept up my interest, you know. But I couldn't write in English for a very long time. Yeah. Migration is, is really difficult. Oh, you know? absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I sort of felt I couldn't speak any language for a while. Um, and, um, you know, you sort of, when you start writing as a migrant, you think you actually have to write perfect English and it becomes very stilted and very fixed, you know, especially if you're trying to write poetry, which I always wanted to write. 
you know. Yeah. And so it, it took me it took me a long time um, to get sort of confidence to start writing, you know. Mm. Yeah. Can you talk about the migrant experience further and how this really has um, given an impression onto your writing and your life just generally? Well, um, I, I started off writing poetry with 9 to 5 with Collective Effort Press. And Pi is a big influence on me in that mm. sense, Pi are. Um, and then after that folded, I, I started editing a magazine called Migrant 7. And, um, you know, it was... You, you just got all these stories about people being um, disenfranchised, you know, uh, living in some sort of uh, existentialist reality of not really being here and not being back home and all this. And um, I started writing, you know, quite a lot of migration poems with them. Uh, but, you know, the submissions were coming in and I was starting to write them too. But I've always written migration poems, really, Um it's part of part of who I am. I, I call myself a migrant poet, and um, uh, I'd like to read a couple of poems that are, are more recent, you know, but they're more for the refugees now because I feel I'm a migrant, but I'm comfortable, you know. Like I've lived here since 1963. I'm I'm an, you know I'm I'm Australian, you know I'm Dutch Australian. So the poems that I write these days are, are very much to do with the refugees. Knapsack for our refugees on many islands. Dream face to face. Love heart to heart. Disappear at night into one's luggage. The world shrunk to a dream-sized pillow. Bush a array, no place to call one's own. Head to head, fingers to keys. A world of digital toys. Body language, fist to fist, arm to bat, hand to ball, find somebody who knows somebody who knows. It feels good to hug a football. Mouth to mouth, resuscitation. And the second one is called Waiting for the Weather to Change. I still remember looking at the photos, listening for the whistle of the postie, unconscious for weeks trying to remember language, stop the panic, respond to letters. A shared exile in a kitchen out of a container crate, touching the same teapot, the cracked sugar bowl, laughing or crying, waiting for the weather to change, waiting for a bird to appear at my window, sing again with the added amplification of the galvanized iron gutter, dreaming about escaping, about going home, imagining possibilities in time and space, crossing over to remote connections, perhaps to some unknown, reassuring past, who always wants to consider ailing world economies, places of exile, life-threatening situations? Yeah, it's really powerful stuff there, Yelchi. It's oh, like thank you. That that migrant experience and like um, just having that in my family and having lived overseas as well. It's you neither here nor there. Like you don't really have a sense of where home is once you know two cultures. That's so, it. Yeah, it's very confusing. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yelchi, other than Patti Smith, um, who or what have been your poetic influences? Well, you know, um, 
it all started off with me trying to write for the page, as everyone tries to do when they start writing, you know. They see all these lovely poetry books on the shelves and they think they have to write exactly like the people on the shelves, and that's exactly what happened to me. I tried to do it, but I found it incredibly tedious, so I was attracted to film. And I, um, I was really lucky to be accepted by the Swinburne Film and Television School, and I was there for two and a half years before I started working in the ABC. And um, I loved the process of editing, and so, I, and it was like um, creating non-linear narratives. I was really interested in what the ABC was doing. It was uh, sort of uh, late seventies, um, and it was like a, you know, I thought it was like a post-colonial project of. Um, working with everyday speech and using speech patterns and everyday imagery, you know, to create meaning rather than more formal ways of saying things and putting programs together. So, uh, And I met Payo um, at the ABC. I was working in sound effects. And uh, he kind of convinced me that uh, poetry in Australia was moving in a similar direction. So Payo has been really... Um, influential you know on my on my poetry and we started up nine to five which was um yeah it was political you know like it was poetry by the workers for the workers about the workers work um and nine to five attracted a lot of poets and also would-be poets because you know we were not being exclusive like we really wanted people to contribute especially workers of course and we took it everywhere in the streets yeah but mainly sort of through workplaces, um, through the unions. You know, we did fundraisers for unions and stuff, reading 9 to 5 poetry. We also went on 3CR a lot because mm. 3CR just sort of started up and uh, 3 R, and, you know, it was great. Yeah, so really grassroots. Yeah, yeah. And, through, and through 9 to 5, uh, you know, I sort of very, was influenced by the 9 to 5 poets, of course, the people that came into there, and, and also especially... But also Jess H. Duke, and he loved he loved Brecht as much as I did. I, I, I really always loved Bertolt Brecht, and I used to go to his place and we used to sing the Thrupani Opera, you know, yeah. in German, Fantastic. You know, together, like on this old record player that was really scratchy record, and you know, it was a terrible sound. And we used to spend the Saturday afternoons doing that instead of the football, you know. I did want to ask you if you could sing Mackie Messer, but. I'll... <laughs> I think I might leave that to the um, professional people doing that. I, I'm not very good at singing Mackie Messer, <laughs> you know. But, um, yeah, so anyway. And then before I started writing English, I think I told you before we got into the studio, I loved reading the poetry of Jacques Prévert, French poet and, and battle practice, I said to you. And, um, and the short stories, very dense short stories, very dense linear work that was appearing in Germany after World War II. I just really loved their short stories. And I've always loved sort of long claustrophobic sounding sentences like Kafka was using and, um, and collage, you know, collage... Uh, like the existentialists were using, like um, Albert Camus, you know. But nine to five, well, you know, I've been thinking about that heaps. I think it was influenced by Charles Olson a lot during that time. Olson's ob- objectivism, you know, ob- objectivism. Yeah, he saw himself, he saw words as objects around him and he was an object himself and he thought... Um, you know, as objects in the field, this is all very philosophical, but they would eventually be able to reconfigure the surrounding kind of discourse, you know, which was, um, you know, the advertisements on the radio and, uh, 
you know, sort of really uh, monocultural 50s, 1950s stuff in America. So Charles Wilson was really important for everybody, I think. You know, I'd like to give him credit here. Um, and, of course, like the Beats because of their performance, mm. jazz, <laughs> you know, that was fantastic. Um, Jeremy Rotenberg was really important because he had all those anthologies. I don't know if you come across them. They're perhaps not as important these days as they were then. It was the only thing you could get hold of. And um, it was so varied what he was putting in there. It was just fantastic. He had such a grasp of what poetry could be and could be and very oral, mm. you know, like very performative. And um, and the futurists, like <laughs> Mayakovsky, I'd say. And um, but I think all of these influences favoured intersubjectivity, face-to-face communication mm. with live audiences. Mm. Could we perhaps now hear a nine-to-five poem, Yorchi? <laughs> yeah, um, one of my favourites, really, from that era, is um, about a tea lady, and it's called "The Tea Trolleys Have Been Dispensed With." It's about, in general terms, it's about workers being replaced by computerised machines. And the poem is based on um, snatches of dialogue, um, capturing um, speech patterns. And I'm, I'm actually quite fond of this poem, even though it's quite old. The tea, trolley, the tea trolleys have been dispensed with. We now have a cafe bar machine. It has a plastic mat and a metal claw to hold the plastic cup. You press the key, you stand on the mat, and the cup comes down. Sometimes, though, not one, not two, but three plastic cups come down at once and coffee runs all over your hands and the plastic mat. Alice comes in to clean the machine because the machine can't clean itself. The commission has justified its position by employing former tea ladies to clean up the slops and stock up the machines. One woman has bruises all over her arms from boxes that are too heavy for her, but the bosses make a joke of it. They call her the little mother and she runs from machine to machine to clean and fill up with Milo muck, sweet farmy dairy substitutes and chicken motor sodium glutamate and bottles of sweet sickly cordial. Alice hasn't been to the toilet once since they took her off the tea round. The machine is on all day and all night and on public holidays. And while you're having your summer vacation, the machine stays on. Black no sugar, black with sugar, white no sugar, white with sugar, tea black no sugar, tea white no sugar, tea black with sugar, tea white with sugar. Just press the key and the cup comes down. George said it didn't look like tea. We said it probably wasn't. George said, coffee is usually better, I'll Try the coffee instead, and he put in his money, and he stood on the plastic mat, and the cup came down to shoot, and through the perspex window, we could see what he was getting, chicken soup. She smiles like a fish, she smiles like a fish, he will not see her. She smiles like a hyena, he will not see her. She smiles like a cat, she smiles like a cat, he smiles like a fish. He smiles like a fish, she will not see him. She smiles like a cat, he smiles like a fish. He smiles like a hyena, she will not see him. He smiles like a cat, he smiles like a cat. He smiles like a cat. She smiles like a fish. Like a fish. <laughs> 
You're listening to Spoken Word on 3CR and my name is Ella Fanelska and my guest in the studio today is Yelchi and we just heard She Smiles Like a Fish which sounded very much like sound poetry which is the next topic I want to pick Yelchi's brain on. Um, can you tell us about your connection to sound poetry, Yelchi? Well, I'm not exactly a sound poet but um, uh, I do rely you know, uh, on using sound poetry in my work. I do use existing structures of language um, to tell a story, but um, it doesn't, it's not enough for me to do that. I, I really like, um, you know, using languages kind of interrupted, you know, and uh, I really think, that, you know, the disintegration of language is really important, and sound poetry really does that. And, um, you know... Uh, when I write, I'm conscious of uh, rhythm, alliteration, and sound performance, so uh, seemingly random arrangements, you know, of patterns of speech, rather than relying on existing meaning of syllables, you know, of sentences, of words. And I also mimic speech. And I suppose, uh, she smiles like a fish, she's mimicking speech in a sense. Um, you know, I, I sort of overemphasize elements or underemphasize them sometimes rather than just paraphrase or, or lifting, you know, something that sounds like reality, you know, to most people. But it is based on reality, but it is kind of like a bit random, you know? Yep. Yeah. yeah. And She Smiles Like a Fish was um, of a recording called um, um, So Be It. And it was a collaboration with um, two improvising musicians, Jacques de Jong from Unimund's Quorum. And the saxophonist Robert Calvert, and um, as you can, as you heard, it's about mostly an incompatible um, love relationship. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about the role of politics now, Yochi. Um, how can poetry be political, and what role does politics have in poetry? <laughs> well, you know, um, currently, uh, the, you know, the theorists. Um, uh, Say that you know the very the very act of writing poetry is a political act, um, and uh, it lies in the within the language itself. So um, it's interrupting the uh, the uh, deafening narrative of capitalism. You know, um, so it's a form of activism, uh, and and, the, and and activism lies in the breakdown and the disintegration of language. Um, so it's it's quite different from. You know, from the past, because you know, when I started writing in the seventies, it was more like uh, uh, using existing structures of language to tell a story, so people would be moved to act. You know, so it's quite different. But um, um, I still do both in the sense, you know, <laughs> I still have the narrative, and I also do sound poetry. But I'd like to read you one one of my political sound poems. Uh, as a contrast to She Smiles Like a Fish, which was more like fun. Um, and it's um, a piece where um, uh, language breaks down completely. And when we first recorded it, I had, you know, I had improvising musicians that were actually um, 
use their voice as percussion and and the language just broke down to mere sounds, you know, or what, what people call morphemes. Um, and the poem consists of a non-linear sort of narrative that progresses like the sequence of, of, of you know, the news, news bulletins that we hear every night. And um, the actual content is totally um, irrelevant, you know, uh, replaceable. And the only thing that's really happening is what's happening in front of the TV, which is my mother and the cat biting the carpet. And what remains of the news is an emotional response to the depressing content of the news and it's expressed in my mother's irritation and frustration with the cat biting the carpet. So it becomes really quite comical. And I use repetition to convey the, the restlessness of um, the relentlessness, I should say, and the restlessness of the news that just seems to drone on all the time. And then uh, at the end, uh, I mimic the, the closure of the news where we're sort of reassured by the tone of the voice, you know, that everything is okay and we should really do nothing about it. It's called Cheer, <coughs> Cheer Squad TV News. Cheer Squad TV News is telling us that real men have accomplished what they have accomplished. My mother tries to cook the cat chews on the carpet. My mother gets angry at the cat gets on her feet when she tried to cook, then chews on the carpet. I pick up the cat. He wants to bite me there, there in front of the heater, not under our feet when we try to cook. Cheer squad news, accidents, wars, my mother tries to cook, I pick up the cat, put him near the heater, there, there's a good cat, there, there, the cat tries to bite me. Cheer squad news, from telling us what we have accomplished, my mother tries to cook, I pick up the cat, from chewing the carpet. Cheer squad news, from under our feet, the cat has gone to sleep, we have accomplished what we have accomplished. Cheer Squad News is telling us my mother has cooked what she's tried to cook. The cat has gone to sleep. There, there's a good cat from under our feet, from chewing the carpet. There, there's a good TV news in front of the heater. My mother has cooked what she's tried to cook. The cat has gone to sleep. Princes by Night is your fourth collection of poetry, Yochi. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's actually finally I got around to um, articulating the, um, the, the Dutch colonial experience after many years of trying to do that. My first book was actually called Living in Aboriginal Australia. I became aware of, uh, of how important it was to write about colonialism while I was doing Margaret Seven. And, um, um, you know, I got so many submissions about people being dispossessed that I became also sensitised to the disposition of Aboriginal people. And, um, in fact, the, the magazine sort of documented the process of the editor of becoming more and more aware of what was going on, you know, where I was situated. So I'd like to just read one poem from Living in Aboriginal Australia, which was published in 1988. It's called I Yelchi, and you probably can see it because you know German literature. It's based on a Bertolt's Brecht, you know, not based, but it's referencing Bertolt Brecht's poem from Armen Bay Bay. It goes, Yelchi. I, Yelchi, from the blood-soaked cities of northern Europe, came to this land to hear birds sing from the tops of my roof and hang out my washing in sunny skies. My parents brought me here as a child, away from the acid rain, away from the black skeletons who bombed in the cities, away from the endless pounding of factories polluting the rivers and streams. In some rivers, you couldn't count one fish. I, Yelchi, from the European cities where the parents of school-aged children used to hang themselves from home-light fittings 
and turned their garages into guest chambers for themselves, I came to my senses in Aboriginal Australia in time to learn new words. Yelchi, could you please read us a poem from your brand new book, um, Princes by Night, that is going to be launched soon? Thanks. Um, yeah, I'd like to read Kaum Sana, um, which is um, Indonesian for the colonisers. And there's another word I have to explain before I launch into it. Uh, it's mengkultur, which is a Dutch word, and it actually means mixed culture. So it's set in 1947. Kaum Sana, 1947. These were crazy times. Everything was possible, friend or foe, fostering a born-again Indonesia, call it a hostile brotherhood, the international writers with voices from afar, as if in separate rooms, some from the Dutch resistance, and outspoken Indonesian writers, again inside Dutch military jails, literature as a living force, writing on both sides, talking of important meetings, of the mind in Jakarta, in restaurants, and in Indonesian kampongs, and about the role of the writer, not just wielding a pen, but in the service of community, still all speaking Dutch and in the Dutch publications in Indonesia of world cultural significance a menkultur like the menkultur in Cuba, Peru, Mexico, Brazil, the Philippines and steadfast and still remaining friends looking away from the outer turmoil these good friends from the past now up in their necks up to their necks in daily reports of new Dutch military offensives and in the popular mind Dutch writers increasingly the sieve of the Kaum Sana. 90% of all available paper used up by military and like-minded publications unsympathetic to a peaceful solution and finally, without purpose, overcome by despondency and apathy with the inner turmoil as unsolvable as the much-publicised Indonesian conflict, now tolerated rather than welcomed, the cultural dialogue seized in 1948. And the book is sort of set around that time, 1947-1948. Anyway, the launch will be on Friday, the 27th of March, listeners, from 6 to 9.30 p.m. And it's at the Collected Works Bookshop on the first floor of the Nicholas Building, which is a lovely bookshop, isn't it? It is indeed. It's great. Yeah, we should all support it. All poets should go there a lot and buy lots of books from Chris Hammersley. It's just wonderful in there. Uh, And so, yeah, so everyone's welcome, of course. We're now approaching the end of the program. Uh, my name is Alison Elskar and you've been listening to Spoken Word on 3CR. And I'd like to thank my guest, Yelchi, for coming. Oh, thanks, Ella. It was wonderful to be on the program and thank you, 3CR, as well. Thank you. And we're going to finish the program with one final piece uh, taken from the CD Dreaming in English, which was a collaboration um, of Yelchi with Harry Williamson. to bed with the radio on but at 4am I had the whole bar up on the dance floor
This is after we read poetry to each other from books in the ladies' lounge. And I also noticed on closer examination that the storm outside had not only washed away the pier, but the railway bridge to the other side of the waterway. There'd been a few arguments earlier. Some muted near skirmishes between men who came and went, their fists clenched tight. But now, at 4 a.m., The music must have gotten them up on their feet. And we were ready to dance the remaining hours of the night away. <laughs> 